Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Digital Transformation Director for Winfield United. Joining me on the phone today is Scott Komar, Senior Vice President of Global Research and Development for Driscoll's. Scott, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Joel, it's a pleasure to join you today, and I've listened to several of your prior recordings, found them very interesting and insightful. Well, great. As a consumer, I recognize the Forberry business that you guys got. Tell me a little bit about Driscoll's and what you guys are up to. Our products are the four leading berries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries. It's all fresh, brought to the consumer every day as fresh as possible, and with a high emphasis on flavor that we want to bring to the consumer. And this model that we've expanded, although its very earliest roots started here in California for 100 years ago, has expanded over time throughout North America, Europe, Australia, and then more recently, China. Wow, that's really exciting. So as a background for our listeners, you know, Scott and I met this spring at the Copernicus Project, which was an immersive experience created by Land Lakes in Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest Conference. And the purpose of the experience was to help consumers explore this intersection of technology, health, and food security, and challenge some of the beliefs that they've developed about our food system. So I think it's really exciting to have, you know, somebody whose product goes directly into the consumption by consumers. And, you know, as you talk about this four berry business, I think about the contrast between berry production and corn production. And, you know, you guys have this motto, you know, in the pursuit of flavor. And I loved watching some of the YouTube videos on Driscoll berries and the pursuit of flavor and talking about how it has to look a certain way, but then it also has to taste a certain way. And, oh, by the way, it also has to ship with having a great customer experience a long ways down the road to the grocery store for us to enjoy that. So tell me a little bit about how you meet consumers, where they're at around their expectations. Well, it really starts with our mission, Joel, and reads simply as to continuously delight our berry consumers. So as you mentioned, the shopper that's there in the store every day, we want to continuously delight our consumers through alignment with our customers, which is often the retailer, a retail chain, a retail grocery chain of some sort, in our berry growers. Our berry growers are, in fact, independent businesses. They're essentially family-run businesses that are dedicated to these ideals that we have with our mission. That's how we connect most directly with the consumer. I'd say that's how we build trust with them, and we do that across these four berries and delivering the highest quality we can all year long. Yeah, that's quite an image to uphold in that consumer's eyes. I noticed most recently that, you know, as I'm walking into the grocery stores, Triscoll's berries seem to be right up front. The raspberries and strawberries here in Minnesota in the grocery stores seem to be right up front. What's it like to be the first food impression as they walk into the grocery store? <laughs> well, we definitely feel the responsibility. We take that very seriously, but it's a reflection, Joel of the interest that exists in this category. So maybe there's a few foundational elements. Certainly flavor is the case. Freshness is certainly a big consideration. Nutrition brings people into the category for different perspectives they have on nutrition and convenience. 
how can they do their shopping and bring that home to their family in a convenient way? That can be going to the store. And more and more we see now uh, you know, what you might call click and ship, where you can order it online and have that product delivered fresh. But the key is, in our case with Driscoll's, there's a brand association that the consumer has. And so having that product right when you come in the store is a great way to start the shopping experience. Now, I will say for our product, you know, it's perishable for sure. And we get a little nervous, uh, maybe, you know, in, in your reason, let's say during the summer when the heat is there. And so we want to make sure those berries stay refrigerated. But it's great to have them as that lead purchase opportunity when the shopper comes in the store. So I think it's really interesting for you to talk about consumers as your customer, but you also have these family farms that are growing the berries out here. And if we can, let's dig into that a little bit. What are the ways that the agricultural sector can better communicate with consumers? Because you, you're really at a really tight crossroads between, you know, the farmer right down to that berry going into the consumer's mouth. I mean, you're at a unique intersection there. How do you think we can communicate better with consumers? It's an interesting question because when we talk about the consumer, you know, what is their motivation when they're coming to the store? We have tried to make the face of the grower something that they can connect with. And uh, as you mentioned early on, there's some videos that we've pulled together that really help tell that story. Many of our growers are multi-generational growers. And so they have fascinating stories to tell about the dedication that it takes to grow these crops. And certainly, uh, you know, I was in Manhattan a few weeks ago, and that's a long ways from the farms, you know, wherever they might be in California or Florida or Oregon or what have you. And yet when that shopper can relate somewhat to how that product, how that produce got there, we think it deepens the connection that they can have with our brand. In some parts of the world, other factors can play more prominent. And I'll use China as an example. There's a varying degree of trust in their end and supply chain. So as a result, food safety becomes a much higher priority than what we see in other parts of the world. And so for them, they really value this vertical integration that we bring. It reinforces the standards that we're bringing to the brand. I think we see some of that in Europe as well. There's been breakdowns in the supply chain on meat and poultry and so forth at times in the past, and that's really left the consumer thinking a little bit more about how their food got there. And so we take the opportunity to show them this tight integration that we have, the speed that we bring product to the shelf, and I think they appreciate that. That's really interesting to be partnered in 20 countries with farmers. I imagine there's a set of standards or requirements to be a Driscoll's berry grower. What are the standards and how are they evolving for the farmers to meet those expectations to deliver on the Driscoll berry promise? It's interesting the path to becoming a Driscoll's grower. Maybe I'll use an example of a grower in Mexico where they might have been farming avocados or tomatoes or some crop where they've been in agriculture for a while and they're interested in getting into berry production. And so the first thing that we want to do is identify which of the four crops they have the most passion for getting started with. And so maybe it's blackberry. 
And so then we'll say, well, you know, let's get you started with one hectare of blackberry, but we're going to go really deep on all the practices that it takes, the agronomic practices, the food safety practices, and including the initiation of the supply chain where the harvest is occurring. These are crops that are harvested six days a week, and it's a continuous harvest cycle that we have. And so being able to execute day in and day out is really a key element because the quality has to be top and consistent each and every time they're harvesting. And so we want to start small, get them going on the Driscoll's way. There's quite a bit of plant manipulation that goes in with these crops, various pruning practices, of course, different nutritional regimens that go in. Those are brought in. But beyond that, they they learn a lot about how do you get the full expression of the genetic potential of these plants a lot of it happens right there on their farm, and the growers that get really good at that are then rewarded with more and more hectares um, in coming seasons to expand their base and become even larger contributors to the Driscoll's network. But overall, we stay very strong to that independent grower model. Well, so let's talk a little bit about those farming practices that growers are using. You know, you, you talk about them helping the berries reach their full genetic potential. Now, it's my understanding you guys actually breed your own berries, and the berries can be successful in different parts of the country. But when it comes down to the local growing conditions, and we always talk about all agronomy is local, how do you find those best management practices and then do you share that with the network of growers, or does each grower have their own Coca-Cola formula, so to speak? Yeah, this is an interesting one. We have a level of innovation that occurs when we are developing new genetics and the next new variety. And so if I can touch on that for a moment, it's quite interesting. We have very dedicated, very extensive breeding programs for each of these four berry crops. And so as that development, you know, from the initial crossing that we have through a graduated process to ultimately get to that winning variety is this traditional breeding process that we go through. But as, as that's being developed, each of these varieties have their own level of unique plant management requirements to get the full potential. And it's a great opportunity where our growers, they love to trial and experiment with what they see is, is the optimal growing practice. And so there's a really uh, dynamic interplay that goes on back and forth between our Driscoll's production and agronomists, as well as our independent growers and the learnings that circulate back and forth. Because somebody will come across a technique where they've certain way they were managing the plant as it was emerging and maturing, and then that, that becomes a best practice. And so we have ways of socializing those best practices across the network of Driscoll's growers, and those travel independent of countries or states or even continents. So it's quite interesting how that innovation will come up, and then that gets socialized and shared across the network for the value and the benefit of all the growers that are in the system. So that's always exciting to see the entrepreneurial spirit. And I, what I loved about what you said early on about choosing the growers is finding 
which crop they have the passion for, which ultimately drives them. But I imagine Driscoll's is also doing some of their own work in technology and research and development. Share with me a little bit about what things you're bringing to the farm to match up with these entrepreneurial berry growers. Well, we have, I'm going to use terminology green chain, which is, a let's say, a companion to supply chain. So green chain starts with our R&D group, which is based here in uh, Watsonville, California. Most of our scientists, of uh, many of which are PhDs and very specialized in their work, it starts here. And in that program, we have what we call our joy makers, which are our scientists that are focused on unlocking flavors that can come through these breeding programs. And so, and in that flavor development, it's really interesting because we can start with consumers in a consumer panel and ask them what did they like or maybe they didn't like about certain trial varieties that we have. And they'll give us that feedback and we'll really key in on the themes that they prioritize the most. Then there's a process we can work through where our chemists can locate exactly what is the compound that they're mentioning, that they're highlighting. So we'll find that compound. That compound can be typically associated to a molecular marker somewhere on the genome. And, and so we can find in our breeding population, where does this exist and where can we emphasize this? And then we'll prioritize that coming up through our program so that ultimately these flavors get back to the consumer and we close that loop. So there, there's a lot going on at the R&D stage in our breeding programs of what we call genetic development. And then the deployment will come from starting from here, and then it'll fan across the continent. So to create an example, because latitudes are a very important factor in how these plants will adopt to their climate. And so we'll look at a certain latitude. It might be, you know, 35 degrees, and we'll say, hey, here's a new variety that really thrives at this latitude. Okay, now... Where does that latitude exist in Europe? Where does it exist in Australia and China? And so we're looking for ways in which we can pair that up. And then we team up with the growers that then, as they're getting more and more experience with this particular variety, they find these innovations on how to really manage the plant and get its full expression. And so that together describes this whole green chain that evolves, and it's really fascinating, the loop that comes back to us, either from the consumer, they give us more feedback, hey, we'd like, you know, more of this type of flavor or color or shape in the berry, and then then the growers say, hey, you know, here's something that was really helpful, this kind of plant architecture made it easier for our harvesters to make their way through the crops. You know, could we have more architectures like that? Or here's an architecture that was more open and it really minimized the susceptibility to certain plant diseases. So this loop is coming back and the breeders are taking in all of these priorities. It's like this incredible optimization puzzle that they solve. And so they factor those back in 
and try another year of breeding and trials, and then you know we can see what's the next winning variety that'll that'll come out of all of that. So that's really interesting. I mean, the use of marker-assisted breeding in berry crops, I mean, that's something that we're really used to and has really launched a ton of genetic potential in our corn, soybean, alfalfa crops to do that. But to know that that technology is being used down there at production, that's just fascinating. It's really interesting. Yeah, we see your crops that you're closest with are in maybe some ways maybe we're piggybacking off of the progress that's been made in corn and soy and wheat. And so likewise, we look for ways in which, you know, how can we use those technologies to get the priorities that we're looking for with flavor and yield, certainly, and plant architecture. You know that that technology has come a long way. I was in uh, St. Louis last week at a technology trade show, and on my way back to the airport, the Uber driver in his prior life, he's retired now, sold gene sequencers for marker-assisted breeding research. So, (laughs) you know, even the Uber drivers knew what what this thing was about. Everybody's doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so, you know, let's go a little bit downstream in this green chain as you talk about it. Do you have any exciting technologies that growers are using to take advantage and, and help those plants reach their full genetic potential? This is a great introduction to this term ag tech. And I remember you and I were talking about this a little bit at the South By conference. So we do have a narrow focus on you know, what we would call breakthrough innovations that help address some of the biggest challenges we have on the farm. And so not surprising that we're challenged with labor. And it doesn't matter where we go in the world, there's labor shortages. And so that's a big deal. We're also challenged with the scale that we have to really do thorough phenotyping of both our development work, but also our commercial fields. And so we formed a a department, we call it the Open Innovation Department. And there are, um, it's a short list, but that list includes, for example, and I was just meeting I just had before we got on our discussion going, was robotics to be used in the harvesting of strawberries. Another example is that we're working with a, um, I can't mention them by name just yet, but it, it's a very large and very familiar name up in Silicon Valley, high-tech company, but they're working with us to develop an autonomous vehicle for high-speed phenotyping that is just achieving mind-blowing accuracy of precise data capture and gathering And then as we're translating that, you know, how can we apply that to our breeding efforts? How can we apply that to our commercial fruit forecasting efforts? How can we apply that to plant health and disease detection? So super interesting applications and just mind-blowing amounts of data that's being gathered but then synthesized down through machine learning algorithms to get to insights that we would have to deploy, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people to achieve the same results. So, and then a third area that we're into, and it's, it's going to be real interesting to see how this emerges, but the concept of an indoor farm or a controlled environment farm where the whole environment is controlled with artificial lighting, the climate's perfectly protected We think it would be some interesting uses of those technologies. But those are areas that we're very interested in from an open innovation standpoint. 
and with this ag tech sector just growing by leaps and bounds, it's a bit of work on our part just to stay abreast of all the startups that are that are coming in this space. And you, you probably see the same thing on your side. Yeah, actually, we, we use a similar accelerator. We use Thrive to help source some of those technologies for us and to try to get those introductions and try to figure out what those next technologies what might be. So I, I heard you say robotics, particularly around the harvesting, imaging through phenotyping for plant disease, but also for you know fruit type, and then indoor farm. So what berry is the most technologically receptive? Because, you know, I mean, all these things have their own nuances, but what berry do you think is the most technologically receptive to move forward? Well, we look at this in a couple ways. The first is the path to commercialization. And we think that this high-speed phenotyping is the closest path to commercialization. And we welcome the adoption of that. It's amazing the amount of phenotyping that we do every day and the ability to do that faster, more accurately, and more thoroughly is, is it's a big deal for us. So we think that's the closest in technology. And then which of the crops that's for us the most acute challenge from a labor standpoint is strawberry. Hmm. And there's so many opportunities for us to improve the ability to make that a harvest that's more appealing and more manageable. And so we see it could be, you know, robotic-assisted harvest where the robotics are doing part of it and then manually coming through later. We see ways in which the crop could be brought to the workers on conveyoring systems, really fascinating concept there. So many ways that we're going to come at it, but we feel the pressure to deliver innovation in the space because it's a very, very challenged crop from an economic standpoint. Land rents keep going up, water's precious, labor scarcity is a big deal. And so for us to solve this area, we'd, we'd, there's, we really would love to solve some of these for strawberry. It'd be great. So again, that's really interesting, you know, to be able to utilize technology to help sort berries and, and do the phenotyping piece. Is there ever any temptation within Driscoll's to go outside of the four berries to go into other pieces? <laughs> well, at various times in the recent years, we've contemplated a fifth berry, whatever that might be. But what brings us back, Joel, to that conversation is the fact that we have a long ways to go still to get our arms fully around the first four. And with consumer demand as strong as it is in this sector, it has definitely kept us focused on, you know, strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, and blackberries. And But I think someday we'll get there, you know, a fifth berry, and we'll see what that turns out to be. But these first four definitely keep us quite busy. <laughs> so I love, and I think when we, uh, when we talked out in California, we were together for a minute, the intense focus of staying disciplined around a, being a four-berry company, that the opportunity to get distracted amongst there is infinite. What technology, you know, you talked a little bit about molecular assisted breeding, but inside the harvest process, what are the technologies that you see there being the most near term? And maybe talk a little bit about the workforce in rural America. We're obviously having them upskill and do more with bigger equipment. How are you guys handling the opportunity for the labor force to participate in the green chain? 
You know, for us, we have put quite a bit of focus in the recent years on just how the plants are presented to the harvesters and what we can do to make that job faster and more efficient. We're certainly very much involved also in the conversations and the efforts around immigration and how we provide access to this workforce. And that's the case we find, frankly, globally when we go around. I mean, just, you know, I can, if I'm in Europe, I'm in these conversations, uh, Australia, same kind of thing. So it's really a worldwide challenge for us to solve, you know, what are the ways in which we're going to have sufficient harvest labor in the years ahead. And we think it's going to be a combination of, you know, what we can do in R&D, what we can do from a policy legislative standpoint, and then what we can do from a technology standpoint with the ways in which we could be assisted or even automated. But we're tackling those from all three angles because we think that's what's going to take to really address this very important part of our whole model. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's the right to operate in there, the opportunity to influence through technology, through agronomy. We feel a lot of those same things in the row crop businesses that we interact with. So that's an exciting place. On the frontier, so I want to play a little game here of, you know, dream with me, Scott. You know, okay, so the world, you know, maybe you can finish this sentence. The world of tomorrow, as it pertains to berries, will be a better place if just this new exciting technology came out, what would that be? What's the dream of tomorrow? <laughs> well, on the genetic development standpoint, I would say it's really fully understanding the genomes, so really having this deep understanding, because these are very complex genomics, and we think there's a tremendous amount for us to understand on the very start of this whole process. And then I'd say on the finishing part, what we're seeing with computing technology, machine learning, robotics, we think it's going to bring to agriculture and our crops in particular possibilities that, you know, even five years ago we couldn't have dreamed of. And so on both ends, the very start and then, let's say, maybe the finishing part where we're initiating the supply chain, we're quite optimistic that there are going to be significant breakthroughs in both of those areas for these crops. So one last piece here. Is there anything fascinating about the Driscoll's business you think our consumers would like to know? I would offer two thoughts. The first is to get to a variety that the consumer will see, you know, in that clamshell of berries. It's a very thorough development process. It typically takes seven years from initiation to finish, and along the way, thousands of plant crossings being evaluated to find that one winning you know, needle in the haystack. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the supply chain side, it's almost the inverse. It's one of the highest velocity supply chains you'll see out there. We're, this year, we're going to pack up over 1.2 billion clamshells of berries. Our crops are harvested six days a week. And once that fruit is picked, it is quickly brought to a cooling center within hours, shipped out that night to a customer's D.C. In turn, they move it to their store and then their shelf as quickly as possible. It's all accomplished in a few days. 
it's really incredible velocity. So it's, it's kind of a neat aspect of the model where the start is such a long, arduous effort, seven years or more. And then the finishing part, we measure. We don't even measure in terms of days. We measure in terms of hours. It's really, it's really something. That's awesome. Scott, I appreciate you being on The Deal with Yield and helping us understand a little bit about your business. Scott Komar, Senior Vice President of Global Research and Development for Driscoll's. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Joel, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for the more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.